0: Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you so much, Pastor Kate. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lane. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to be back. The ice has melted. Uh, my family and I, we were visiting Jana's family in uh, Hawaii uh, over New Year's, and then we came home to 16-degree snowstorms, and so... I'd like to announce that we are starting a new fundraising campaign to move Red Hills Church and its entire congregation to Oahu. It's expensive, but with God, all things, right? It's good. I'm kidding. Uh, no, I actually, I actually loved coming home to the snow. Our daughter, Brooklyn, she's at the age now, she's 17 months, where she's able to kind of appreciate the wonder of the snow, which is really, really magical. Last week, we were supposed to start a new teaching series, and so we're gonna jump into it today. It's called When We Pray, and this series is going to be all about prayer. You guessed it, yeah. I'm going to show my work a little bit and let you into some of the behind the scenes of how we go about our teaching here at Red Hills. I've been here for about a year and a half now, and while I've been here, I've tried to map out the sermon series that we do six to 12 months in advance, and I spend a lot of time in prayer with the Holy Spirit forecasting culture and discerning what the needs of the community is going to be alongside the Holy Spirit. And something that has burdened my, my thoughts and my prayers a lot has been this coming election year, which is now upon us. And so for about a year, I had on the teaching calendar that in January 2024, we were going to start a series called Evil and the Justice of God. And in this series, we were going to wrestle with the nature of Christian ethics and morality um, and justice Because what better way to head into an election year than by pondering the nature of god's goodness and his church's response to evil in the world it sounded good but every time i looked at that series on the calendar every time i prayed about it i felt no peace i didn't feel settled you know in the pandemic era right circa 2020 2021 right at the height of political unrest and racial unrest and COVID anxiety Uh, Jaina and I were in our living room on Facebook and Instagram and stuff on our phones, and we were just pouring through our social media feeds, looking at people post the most spiteful, condescending, mean-spirited, hurtful stuff about people they disagreed with. Stuff the average person would never say to someone's face, but social media often gives us this kind of false courage to confront People and to critique people that we would never do in any other situation. And Jaina looked at me and said something that has always stuck with me. She asked me, are people working out any of these things with Jesus before they post? And it's a good question. Like, are people going to the Messiah in the scriptures, humbly approaching him in prayer, asking him to guide their thoughts and their actions? Are they allowing space for the Savior who died for the very people who were killing him to transform their hearts and minds? Are they taking the advice of the Apostle Paul and taking every thought captive, taking their anxious thoughts to God in prayer to receive a peace that is transcendent above above our understanding? Before they post, are they praying? And based on what we were reading, the answer was clearly no. No. No, what it looked like was that people were allowing what they saw on social media or the news to fill them with outrage, and then in that state of heightened anger, they were anxiously reacting in their flesh. I mean, things got pretty bad, didn't they? They got pretty nasty. Friendships, relationships, and families were divided. Things were said that left lasting wounds. And how many of those situations got to experience reconciliation? Or healing. How many experienced redemption? Church, hear me. If we thought it was going to be hard, if we thought it was hard then, it's going to be so much worse this year. And how are we going to handle it? How are we going to show up to a culture that is erupting all around us? Now, before we get to, if we get to, grappling with the social Economic and political implications of Christian ethics and frameworks for justice and culture change, and all that, if we get there, there's a vital piece that needs to happen first. We need to pray. We need to draw close to our Creator and make His voice the final say in our hearts and minds. Because when we fight fire with fire, When we repay evil with evil, when we add noise to the already overstimulated cacophony that is our society, we've seen what happens. We've seen the battle lines get drawn. We've seen the wounds get dealt out. But when we pray, it changes everything. Today, we're going to jump around in the story that Pastor Kate read a little bit and see how what happened in the garden reflects what happens in our prayer lives This passage is really dense, and many, many sermons could be pulled from just these few verses, but we're just going to focus on a few ideas today. We're going to do a little bit of background and see what these truths hold for us as we head into 2024. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this place. I ask that you would have your way. Would you make space in our hearts and minds for you to do what you would do? God, I ask that you would use me. I ask that you would use this passage, and I ask that you would form us in your likeness. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so some of you may be wondering, if we're starting a series on prayer, why go to Genesis 3? Why talk about the serpent and the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Well, to answer that question, we first need to answer this question. And it's the, sermon of, or the title of today's sermon. What is prayer? What is prayer? What is prayer? I'm going to answer it for you right off the bat uh, with three things. It's definitely more than these three things, but it's at least these three things. Prayer is intimacy with God, it's trust in God, and it's formation by God. Prayer is intimacy with God, trust in God, and formation by God. Let's start with this first one. Prayer is intimacy with God. Something that we observe in the garden before the events of chapter 3 is a world and creation free of shame. It says that they were naked, unashamed, excuse me, unashamed before God and before one another. This shameless intimacy is then disrupted by the rebellion of human beings. So, prayer is primarily the way in which we push back against this curse and we enter into the blessing of Eden, which is in part divine intimacy with God. Etymologically, the Hebrew understanding of prayer. It's primarily to request something of God, to go to him with our needs. But let's examine the implication of that concept, right? Because to go to God with our needs, this implies a dependence on God. And that requires a humility and a transparency before God. And ideally, it suggests that we would place a high value on God's response to our prayers. That we place a high priority on his voice. When Jesus teaches his followers to pray... He instructs them to refer to God as our Heavenly Father. There's this parental dynamic to our relationship with God. And when I think about a healthy parent-child relationship in its purest form, in its earliest form, right, there's no shame. Something that our Genesis 3 passage deals with head-on is shame. It's interesting that the first words spoken chronologically to God by human beings is, I heard you, and I was afraid so I hid. Hiding, this shame, this is antithetical to God's desire for relationship with us, intimacy with us, right? When a baby's born, there's there's this dependence a baby has with the parent. The baby comes into the world completely naked, completely dependent upon the parents for all of his or her needs. And there's this immediate vulnerability and intimacy the baby experiences. Prayer is this for us. It's the way in which we push back against the shame that found humanity in the garden. It's the way in which we embrace the presence of God without reservation, without this hiding. My favorite definition of prayer comes from Dr. Amy Oden, who wrote a book on Christian prayer. And she says, the purest form of prayer is being fully yourself with God. Now, if you're anything like me, you can tend to feel like you're bad at prayer. And there's a lot of qualifying that we do when we decide to dedicate time to God in prayer, right? Maybe we feel like we're unworthy to pray. We say things like, God, I know it's been a long time. I know I only come to you when I need something, but et cetera, right? Or maybe we feel like we don't know what to say, that we don't know how to pray. We're afraid that we'll do it wrong or that we'll look stupid if we're praying in front of other people, right? I know a lot of people are afraid to pray in groups, right? Maybe we feel like we don't have the right motives behind prayer. We're like, I don't really have the right motives to pray to God, so I'm just not going to pray at all. But these things highlight the truth that we have the habit of misunderstanding what prayer is at its core. Whether or not one is good at or articulate in prayer, or even if we have the right motivations, that's not the primary objective of prayer. When I was younger, uh, I was pretty oblivious to some social social dynamics in my life. I know Jaina had to help me a lot with that in our early years. And I remember when I left for college in August as a freshman, I waited until October to call home. I just went three months on radio silence, which I was just living my life, doing my thing. I didn't even think about it. And when I called my mom, she was shocked that I finally called. You know, she didn't shame me. She didn't, you know, accuse me of not caring or anything like that. She welcomed it because she was just grateful to connect with her son, right? Prayer is a mechanism. It's a tool that's intended to create intimacy. How good we are at prayer, how long it's been since we've last prayed, it doesn't matter. It doesn't diminish the the act of prayer. It doesn't take away from its value. We don't pray as Christians because we want to get good at prayer. We pray because we desire to know and to be known by God. That's why we pray. So first and foremost, prayer is intimacy, the events of Genesis 3 reveal what happens, what what shame does to us, right? It pushes us into hiding. It takes the pure and holy relationship and intimacy with God, and it disrupts it. I was afraid, and so I hid. So the serpent, the enemy, who we'll get to in a minute, he likes to have us pervert our relationship with God and with one another. Where God desires for us to be close to him, vulnerable and unashamed the enemy wants you hiding because he knows if he can siphon you away from the father then he can kill steal and destroy god's goodness in your life how many of us have found ourselves in a place where our shame is convincing us that we need to hide from god and then hide from one another because if you're hiding from god you're hiding from people that's how that works Your intimacy with God is going to impact your intimacy with others. And prayer embraces this act of removing that shame and moving towards intimacy. So first, prayer is intimacy with God. Second, it's trust in God. Prayer is going to prioritize God as the primary voice in our hearts and minds. Who are we listening to? Who are we believing? Genesis 3 reveals to the reader the truth that any voice, when divorced from the presence of God, leads to death. But the words of God are life. Do we know the voice of God, intimacy, and do we trust the voice of God? When we talk about having faith, faith, the substance of faith is trust. I can believe things about God, but it doesn't become faith until I put my trust in those things. Until I do what he says. In Genesis 1, the, the very first voice on the scene, the first words spoken in our universe are his. Let there be. He's the first. One to speak. And for humans, the relationship was simple. There were two voices. There was God's voice, and there was humanity's voice. But then this story in chapter three introduces a third voice, the voice of the serpent. Now, scholarly conversation around the nature of this serpent is a bit dense, and there's actually a ton of mystery surrounding this imagery. Most of us grew up seeing the serpent as Satan himself. There's nothing in the text that directly implies this, but we are led to believe later, in, like way later in Revelation, that this serpent has now become a dragon and that this creature is the manifestation of all evil and rebellion that began in the garden. Either way, what's more important uh, to take away from this story is not the demonological essence of the serpent, but rather the role that it plays. The role of the serpent, he's described as crafty, clever, Cunning. The serpent is intelligent. The serpent is smart. The imagery of serpents in the ancient world across several Near Eastern cultures was associated with the divine, with fertility, and with death. And remember, Genesis in many ways is responding to the surrounding mythologies of the creation stories of the people like the Babylonians, and the Sumerians and even the Egyptians. And these cultures often deified the image of the serpent. So the author of Genesis is painting this picture of this conflict that exists in the human heart, that we have this struggle to be tempted to listen to the created thing above the creator. The temptation is to entertain the demonic wisdom of the world apart from the heavenly wisdom of God. And here's the problem. The desire of Eve to gain wisdom was not inherently an evil desire. Wanting to be able to discern good from evil is not a bad thing, but wanting to do so apart from the guidance and the context of the creator, that's when we get into trouble. The desire to trust the voice of the created thing over the creator, that's what leads Eve and Adam on the path to death. And worldly wisdom will always make really good points. Worldly wisdom will always be full of reasonable ideas and reasonable conclusions and even good goals. After all, as followers of Jesus, we believe that any wisdom found in this world comes from God. So wisdom and truth can be found in the world apart from acknowledging that it's God's truth. An example is like when a culture that's never encountered Jesus creates a value system around things like humility and honesty and forgiveness. We believe that's God's DNA in all living things. That's his general revelation that this culture has discovered. Or when scientists look under a microscope and they discover the truth behind cell division. That's all God's truth. None of those things are inherently bad. In fact, they're incredible. The desire for wisdom and discernment from good and evil, this is a good and beautiful thing. But any goodness in creation without the context of the creator, as we see the serpent do, can be manipulated to serve the enemy. It can be distorted and perverted to disrupt this intimacy between us and God. Wisdom and knowledge can be pleasing to the eye, reasonable to the ear, but ultimately, if it's used by the enemy, it will lead you away from God. It'll lead you away from trust in his ways. If we're trying to discern it apart from God, if we're having this side conversation with the serpent, believing that we can discern good and evil without God, we don't need to be afraid of wisdom. If truth is truth, that comes from God. But if we try to find truth apart from the truth giver, it will lead to death. And this is why we come back to prayer. What voices are are prioritized in your life? Is God's voice the first and last voice that you listen for? What serpents are pulling you aside to try to distract you, to convince you, saying things like, you know, you can figure out this good and evil thing on your own. You don't need God. You can be like God in figuring this out for yourself. See, the enemy knows that all he has to do is get your attention off of God's voice. And once he does that, once he's taken God out of the discernment process, he's free to convince you of all the half-truths he wants. And he's so clever, he's so smart, he'll make you think it was your idea. And you'll be led away to death. How many of us convince ourselves that we trust God But really, there are other voices that in the moment are are a little more compelling. Compelling intellection and sound rhetoric, these are important elements of solid teaching. But if the teacher, if the gatekeeper is not opening the gate for Jesus, if the primary, primary goal is not that you would know and follow Jesus, then that teaching is not going to lead you to life. Why do we come back to communion every single week? Because every sermon, every song, every announcement, every program, every single thing that comes from a ministry at Red Hills should come back to Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again. Because of our triune God, this author of the universe, that's the only source of life that we have. Do not be deceived. There are lots of crafty serpents out there. There's lots of fruit that is pleasing to the eye and beneficial to gain wisdom. But true life is not tethered to what you know. It's rooted in who you know. Truth is not an idea to be understood, but rather a person we are invited to know. See, evil was smart and chose a serpent because the serpent was something that Adam and Eve knew very well. Adam had, after, after all, named every single creature in the garden. So my question is, what voices are really comfortable in your sphere? When I run into a controversial cultural moment, when I you know, stumble upon something on the news or social media that gets me all riled up, when I run into a tough question, if you're anything like me, you run to your trusted experts, right? Those trusted voices are echo chamber influences. I do this. I run to the sages of my life, the mentors, the wise teachers. Oftentimes, my reflex is, what would so-and-so say about this? Or what does so and so think about this? I wonder what so and so if if they have they've released anything that addresses this, and I'm not saying that's bad. I do it all the time. I'm going to keep doing it. I'm not saying gaining wisdom is bad for you, but doing so apart from the guiding care of the Creator, doing so without a posture of unceasing prayer, that's a problem. Is that voice leading you back to the feet of Jesus? Is that voice inspiring you to come back to the Father? Is that voice encouraging you to work it out with the Holy Spirit? Is the voice of God the first and last voice you listen to? Or is it someone like Jordan Peterson? Or Noah Trevor? Or Ben Shapiro? Or Oprah Winfrey? Or fill in the blank with some name that makes you angry? Church, the voices we trust most will be the voices that form you into who you are. The voices we trust the most will be the ones that form us the most. God's voice will lead us to life. But anything apart from his, even the good ones, even the smart ones, will form us in the way of death. Right? Paul writes to his, uh, in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, imitate me because I have got it figured out. No, no, he says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. If we aren't being formed by Christ, we are being formed by something. And this is why prayer is intimacy with God, it's trust in God, and finally, it is formation by God. What I'm not suggesting is that we stop reading, that we don't stay well-informed, that we set our opinions aside, that we put our heads in the sand and we say, well, I just trust God. No, we don't want to spiritually bypass injustice. And I'm going to continue to have trusted Christian voices in my life who are hopefully bringing me back to Jesus. And I'm even going to listen to and observe and take in things from people I disagree with so that I can better understand where people are coming from and have empathy in their experience. The issue comes when I almost unconsciously start elevating others' voices above the voice of the creator, the created one over the creator. Listen, I, I, I know that what I'm doing is stepping on toes here and that some of you are really uncomfortable listening to what I'm saying. And I want you to know that I am in that frustration with you. See, people who care a lot about truth get very passionate about the truth. And we even get angry when we feel like somebody is trying to present a lack of clarity or deceive others or create confusion. We get angry. There's even maybe a righteous anger, right? Where we don't want people led away. Why, why are things like politics so sensitive? Why do we take political opinions so personally? Because we do. There's someone uh, who wrote something about pastoral ministry that I thought was really interesting, and they describe what they call the domino effect of enmeshment. I'm going to read it for you. The exhaustion, the exhausting but important work pastors have is helping the people we lead move beyond enmeshment with political figures they support. People are so enmeshed that it's hard to distinguish political figures from themselves. The domino effect of enmeshment looks like this, so pay attention. To critique the president or any political leader is to critique the party I align with. To critique the party I align with is to critique the values I hold dear. To critique the values I hold dear is to critique my vision of a flourishing world to critique my vision of a world that flourishes is to critique my understanding of God. To critique my understanding of God is to critique me at my deepest center. And then he writes, it makes sense why people get defensive when their political leader is criticized. But then he writes this. He says, the painful truth of this is if a political leader is beyond genuine critique in your mind, the political leader has taken on a godlike status. And then he says there's a commandment or two that has something to say about that. Knife. (laughs) That's tough. Church, we must be mindful of what voices have authority in my heart because we are always being formed by something. What does your formation look like right now? What voices are you entertaining the most? Is prayer centered on the presence of God, or is it around other things? There's a YouTube video that I stumbled upon that I thought pretty well describes our culture's discipleship process, and I wanted to share it with you. Hey. Hey. Do it. Do it. 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 You want me to do it? it. Do it. Do 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 the thing. You got got it. it. Five new emails from your boss, climate change, a famous person said something racist, a new law's being passed to stop women from breathing too much. 45 people saw your Instagram story, Jerry Seinfeld is cancelled, there's a new kind of COVID probably. Hey, oh yeah, what's up baby boy? Do you, you think it's healthy for me to start every single day like this? Yes, but like in terms of like Like mental mental health? yes. Yes. Okay, okay, then let's, let's keep, keep going. going. A volcano, volcano erupted. Ben Shapiro, ben Shapiro said, said something. something now everyone's yelling. yelling. Okay, I'm going to go okay, make, make some, some coffee now, all right? right? I'm going to need you to, to come, come with, with, with me and keep, keep going, going all day. day. Yes? <laughs> 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 but not you guys, right? We're always being formed by something. We're always being formed by something. If we are followers and disciples of Jesus, we've got to act like it. His voice should be the loudest in the room. His voice should be the first one we wake up to and the first one or the last one we fall asleep to. Notice how the serpent twisted the understanding of God's words, right? Humans tried to handle this moment of confusion on their own in isolation apart from God. Sometimes we assume we already know what God is going to say before we go to him in prayer, And that's spiritual laziness. Have we entered into real discernment about our questions? Or are we adding to what God has said? Notice that Eve adds a little bit to what God had said, which is probably Adam's fault, because he was the one that conveyed the command, that we must not eat from the tree of the garden. And she says, and he also said that we can't touch it. God never said that. Sometimes we like to add our own little bits to what God has said, and we do it in his name. That's dangerous. How often do we encounter something that riles us up or makes us angry? And instead of going to God with that thing in prayer to help him shape our understanding and shape our response, we just use things that God has said or things that we think God has said in an angry rant. How often do we impose our own commands in addition to what God has said? Have we examined ourselves before God before we go on a rant? on social media, or the dinner table, or the workspace, or wherever. If we are going to be the church that we are supposed to be this year, while culture is erupting all around us, we need first and foremost to be people who pray. At the beginning of all this, I said, when we pray, it changes everything. What I did not mean is that whatever we pray automatically happens. It means that when we posture ourselves in a place where we welcome the presence of God, when we create space for intimacy with the Father, when we put our trust in his voice and we allow ourselves to be formed by him, prayer changes everything in us. It transforms our anxiety into peace. It curbs our anger so that we can act in love. When we pray, it changes everything in us. If we are to be people of peace and love, In a culture of anxiety and fear, we must learn to be people who pray. Now, if you're anything like me, you still find prayer difficult. And a lot of us are going to struggle with prayer our whole lives for different reasons. But we must not allow that struggle and that fear and that shame to keep us from the love of God. I want to read an excerpt from a book called Prayer by Richard Foster, which I think will be a timely word for all of us because it's an invitation out of the shame that is caused by the serpent and into the intimacy of the garden. The key to this home, this heart of God, is prayer. Perhaps you have never prayed before except in anguish or terror. It may be that the only time the divine name has been on your lips has been in angry expletives. Never mind. I am here to tell you that the Father's heart is open wide. You are welcome to come in. Perhaps you do not believe in prayer. You may have tried to pray and were profoundly disappointed and disillusioned. You seem to have little faith or none. It does not matter. The Father's heart is open wide. You are welcome to come in. Perhaps you are bruised and broken by the pressures of life. Others have wronged you and you feel scarred for life. You have old, painful memories that have never been healed. You avoid prayer because you feel too distant, too unworthy, too defiled. Do not despair. The Father's heart is open wide. You are welcome to come in. Perhaps you have prayed for many years, but the words have grown brittle and cold. Little ever happens anymore. God seems remote and inaccessible. Listen to me. The Father's heart is open wide. You are welcome to come in. Perhaps prayer is the delight of your life. You have lived in the divine milieu for a long time and can attest to its goodness, but you long for more, more power, more love, more of God in your life. Believe me, the Father's heart is wide open. You too are welcome to come higher up and deeper in. If the key is prayer, the door is Jesus Christ. How good of God to provide us a way into his heart. He knows that we are stiff-necked and hard-hearted, so he provided us a means of entrance. Jesus, the Christ, lived a perfect life, died in our place, and rose victorious over all dark powers so that we might live through him. This is wonderfully good news. No longer do we have to stand outside, barred from nearness to God by our rebellion. We may now enter through the door of God's grace and in mercy in Christ Jesus. And with that, we come to Jesus, and we come to communion. You can take out your elements if you are someone who has yet to become a follower of Jesus, I'm going to ask that at this moment you simply hold these elements in your hand. This practice is reserved for those who call Jesus Lord and serve him as king. I love that line, if prayer is the key, Jesus is the door. Jesus has become our way to the Father. We have access to intimacy with God because of what Jesus has done. He died a horrible crucifixion. If you need communion, by the way, raise your hand and we have some people passing it out. Someone over here, Daniel, third row. He did all of this. The whole story of the Bible was so that we can be with God forever. He wants intimacy with us. So as we lean into, we're halfway done now with the 21 days of prayer and fasting if you haven't started prayer and you want to start praying as we lean into this season of prayer let's remember it's always to come back to christ crucified risen and coming again jesus on the night he was betrayed he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said this is my body do this and remember me And in the same way, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood and the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to put a prayer on the screen that actually comes from this same book. I call it the prayer prayer. And I just want us to take three minutes. I'm going to read it out loud, and then I want you to, for three minutes, just to sit with God, sit with the Holy Spirit, and to pray through this. Dear Jesus, how desperately I need to learn to pray, and yet when I am honest, I know that I do not even often want to pray. I am distracted, I am stubborn, I am self-centered. In your mercy, Jesus, bring my wanter more in line with my needer so that I can come to want what I need. In your name and for your sake, I pray, amen. Let's take three minutes to reflect and pray together.